you could join us to worship our God together. Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you please read with me again in John chapter 6, beginning at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. I think that perhaps one of the very hardest things to discuss when we come to the truths of the Bible is the truth of apostasy. Apostasy, you see, is a theological term, and it refers to someone who forsakes and rejects the Christian religion. Or to to perhaps put it more starkly, it is someone who is numbered among the people of God in, in some way, part of the the visible church, even perhaps those who would make a confession of faith in Christ and yet who betray him through their actions, through their words, and through ultimately their heart. They turn away from the very one source of salvation and turn back to the world. There are various descriptions of this in in the Bible. Jesus spoke of the dog returning to its vomit. And he spoke of the example of of someone possessed by an evil spirit. And the the evil spirit departs from that person and and then returns to find a a great multitude of evil spirits have occupied the the absence. And so the person is worse off than, than before. And there's many other other descriptions of apostasy. And among them is, is this passage that we have just read. And I feel bound as one who is called to preach the whole counsel of God, not to shy away from those things that are hard to discuss. For indeed, when we have experienced that in, in our in our personal lives and and when it's not just idle speculation, then this is something that weighs heavy upon the mind and upon the soul. But I am, I am persuaded that there is profit from considering this soberly and with great reverence and care. And so may the Lord help me as I consider verses 66 to 71 of this chapter under the theme, Lessons About Apostasy. Lessons about apostasy. And we'll consider three thoughts. And the first thing we'll see is the reality of apostasy. And after that, we'll see lessons for resisting apostasy. And finally, we will see 
how apostasy relates to the doctrine of election. Lessons about apostasy. Well, we began to consider this passage in the morning, and we saw that at this point Jesus is in the synagogue of Capernaum, and he is preaching this sermon to a great number of people who have identified with him in some way. They are referred to him as his disciples. They've subjected himself, themselves to his lordship and teaching in a fashion. And yet, as we read this, you, you surely saw that as he unfolds the doctrine of his gospel and as he sets it forth in these stark terms, presenting himself as the very bread from heaven in whom there is eternal life, there is this increasing resistance. And it's, it's a wonderful passage in that it reveals much of Christ, but it's a very dark passage in that it reveals much of man. It reveals much about you and me by nature, and indeed every sinner apart from the grace of God. And in its full flowering, the resistance of the natural heart to God, it most naturally leads to apostasy. And there is indeed a great and terrible description of the reality of apostasy in verses 66 and 67. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Let's consider that verse in the first place. So the reality of apostasy is set forth in the example of these false disciples. And we must use that, that terminology, terminology um, very, uh, very literally. Indeed, they are disciples. They are identified with this Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And yet they are false disciples. So professing allegiance to him, it is all just on the surface. Internally and in their hearts, they had no part with him. They had no true faith, no true love, no true and vital holiness. And so we see there, from that time, many of his disciples went back. Went back to where? Well, they went back to the religion of the Pharisees. Of course, there was at this point, and especially in John's gospel, this emphasized this great division between the religious teachers of, of the Jewish nation, the Pharisees and scribes, and on the other hand, this this great teacher, Jesus, who worked great miracles and was indeed the Messiah of God. And there was a very stark difference. The, the people of the Jews, they were following these teachers who substituted the traditions and doctrines of man for the true law of God. And they substituted a very uh, legalistic and, and hopeless and prideful self-works religion for that of the free grace of God's saving covenant. And so this, this Jesus with his doctrine, there, there was this great difference between he and his followers and those of, of the Jewish leaders. And, and at this point, after hearing all that Jesus has said in his sermon, many, many of them, a great number of those who profess Jesus Christ, 
they went back, went back to what they had left when they had decided to follow him. And I think that probably the, the soberest thing about that verse, and there's much that's sobering about it, is found in the next half, and walked no more with him. Isn't that the, one of the most common descriptions of one who is truly a Christian? They are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are part of a real relationship with him. He matters to them. It's not just about, about some creed or, or things like that. No, it's about him. And here, there are those who not only return, but they they never will return again to Jesus. They walk no more with him. And we ought to see, shouldn't we, that this isn't just something that was true in the days of, of Jesus, but indeed every generation has dealt with this problem of apostasy. Maybe some of you can remember days when when you'd see particular people sitting in your, your pew next to you and, and now they are no longer here and your heart aches for them and you, and you pray for them. And yet, what a, what a terrible thing to leave the Christian faith, even not just to forsake a church, although that is bad enough, but in what is involved in that as well, forsaking the Lord of the church, forsaking Christ himself. And it is, it is greatly to be feared that the days in which we live are particularly days of apostasy. It's been said that we are living through a tidal wave of apostasy. There's different people who once walked with the Lord Jesus now say that they will have no part with him. And I think we ought to recognize that perhaps there's unique examples of how this temptation plays out. And rather than incite all, all of them, I'd like to just give one example of apostasy. And that would be what I mentioned in the prayer this, this morning. You'll recall that this week, uh, the House of Commons, the elected members of our Canadian Parliament, every single one, 338 of them, they all approved Bill C-4. Now, what is Bill C-4? Well, what Bill C-4 is, is it's sold as a, uh, a ban on conversion therapy, as it's called. And a lot of the advocacy for this has uh, about discredited and really... Um, virtually non-existent practices whereby those who are in a homosexual identity or in a transgender identity are abused and, and hurt physically or, or psychologically. That's what it's, what it's purporting to solve, but as many of us heard when we came here for the ARPA talk, Indeed, the scope of this is, is much broader than that because it's been written by homosexual activists. And the purpose of this legislation, it is to actually criminalize anyone who would call a homosexual person or a transgender person to repent of their sin. Those that can now 
If it is passed by the Senate, the other legislative body on the federal level, that will be five years in jail for anyone who would do that. And I'd like to, to read sort of the, uh, one of the sections of this just to give you a taste for kind of what this is involving. Quote, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, and so on. Um, so you get the point. So obviously, there's something very uh, irrational about this, where it speaks about the gender assigned at birth, as though anyone ever had difficulty determining a boy from a girl, as though that was an arbitrary, uh, arbitrary thing. But notice, notice what it's saying here. It speaks of myths and stereotypes. Myths. That is the basis for saying, according to every elected official in our federal capital, every one of them would say that is why people believe that men and women are different. That is why people believe that not only is there a fixed identity of men and women assigned at conception, but also there is a fixed pattern for how it is you are to use your sexual identity. Indeed, those who would say that sex is only to be between one man and one woman in a lifelong union of marriage. That is based upon myth. And as Pastor John Koopman of our Chilliwack congregation pointed out, and something he wrote on this, what you need to understand is that is talking about the teaching of the Bible. Myth. These things about which God has spoken so clearly, our nation, through our elected representatives, with one voice has said, we will not have God's law. Instead, we will call the very law of God myth. And, you know, you might say, well, that, that, is, that is pretty bad. It's pretty bad that people would do that, that anyone would blaspheme the Most High God like that. That men like Justin Trudeau, who are obviously not Christians, would do something like that. But let me tell you what is so much worse. That there were men and women who made this vote, who called the very Word of God myth, who confess the name of Christ. People who got elected by purporting to be Christians, by purporting to advocate for Christian and biblical ethics. People who even today are members of good standing in Christian churches. Even people who are members in good standing in conservative, confessional, reformed churches. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, there's a category for someone who would call the word of God a myth, together with all your peers 
for political expediency. And that word is an apostate. We are witnessing the apostasy of Christians, even at the highest levels of society. And let us not imagine that it will stop there. Do we imagine that in a context in which Christian people, even parents and pastors and biblical counselors, are going to be threatened with this kind of penalty, that they will not be tempted to do exactly the same thing. Dare we even say that there will not be a great many people who will do exactly what these elected officials have done. They will burn some incense to the idol. They will kneel before the statue. They will deny the Lord God and his Christ. That is the kind of danger we're living in. We, of course, know that that surrounded around us, in every city, in every town of Canada, there are, are these churches. With, what do they have? A for sale sign in front of them, like the scattered tombstones of a graveyard, apostate denominations that have rejected the truth of Christianity for worldliness, for perversion, for evil. And it's not stopped. It will, it will continue because, as we saw here, this is what the human heart wants. There's no, no magical property in an average human being that they would resist the tides of history, that they would resist ideological and political pressure and even legal threatenings. You know, the great number of people, they will conform. They will kneel. They will... Even if they can claim the name of Christ, they will apostatize. So, there we have it. The reality of apostasy through the example of these false disciples and obviously in our own day as well. And it's in this context of witnessing a great number of people abandoning him that Jesus asks this prescient question that each one of us should, should consider. And said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Will ye also go away? So you get under the picture. Here's a great number of disciples, those who are the false disciples, and who is remaining? Well, this little group. This little group of twelve. Those are the ones left. And so... Jesus is standing there in the synagogue and he, and he preaches the sermon and, and one by one, all of these people abandon him. They can't bear his, his preaching. They can't bear his message. And so they forsake him. And so Jesus, he turns his eyes to the 12 and says this question, will you also go away? Will you go away? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a question we all need to ask. We also need to confront squarely in the face. Is there anyone here who thinks that left unto yourself, you would not abandon Christ? Is there anyone here who says that ultimately, if you would, if you would look at yourself, no, there, there's nothing that, that anyone could do to me, nothing that God would ask of me that would even tempt me in that direction? Well, I wish I had your confidence. I know myself too well. I hope you would not look at someone who is a pastor 
and say that I'm incapable of compromise. You think that as, as time goes on and, and I preach through the scriptures and I come to, let's say, Romans 1, Leviticus 18, Genesis 1 and 2, as these things are, are touched upon, even the, the law of God as it concerns sexual ethics, do you imagine that pastors are immune from that temptation? Not to, to, to minimize or sort of mute the application of God's word? Maybe, maybe to just say, we're going to be really winsome here. And what winsome really means is, well, we don't really say what God, God says. Or if we do say it, well, we don't say it too often or too loudly or too pointedly. Because really, if we're being honest, sometimes... We're frightened by the scriptures, and maybe it's possible even to be frightened by what it will mean to really proclaim them truthfully. It's a terrible thing. I hope you pray for the ministers of our denomination. I hope you pray for me. I hope you pray for our elders and our consistory, that in the face of what will happen, that we will be faithful but also for yourselves. You know, I've, I've kind of been paying attention to the, the people who once professed the truth and maybe they were a great seminary professor, maybe they were a great pastor, and then all of a sudden, well, they're, they're sort of putting the rainbow flag on their profile or they who used to proclaim the truth of the Bible, now they say, well, maybe the, the Bible isn't entirely true. Maybe just Paul made some mistakes, or maybe even Jesus made some mistakes. And then you do a little bit of digging, a little bit of hunting, and, and when did all that begin? Well, there was a son who came out as homosexual, or there was a grandson, or there was a close family friend. I guess the, the question becomes... When it really matters, where is our loyalty? Would you sooner have the approval of God or, or the approval of those who you love most dearly? If those who are closest to you were really pressuring you, saying, well, you need to, need to affirm my identity. You need to get with the program. You need to let go of your old-fashioned ways. Would you be able in love, but in firmness to say, here I stand and I can do no other. God help me. That's the question that's set before us. Isn't there not every reason, congregation, to ask, how is it that we can resist the pressures of apostasy? How is it that we can withstand the things that we will be asked to withstand in the coming days? Well, for that I'd like to bring bring out some lessons for the resistance of apostasy that we can find from, from these verses. And you could find them, for example, in um, first in verse 68. Then Peter, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Now, what a great, a great thing we see here. So there are the 12 disciples, and as Peter often did, he sort of spoke for the group. There was a general question, and, 
And maybe some of those in that group weren't really sure what to say. They were formulating their thoughts. And yet Peter, bold Peter, flawed Peter, but yes, sincere Peter. He comes up with these, these words that come from his heart. Lord, Lord. To whom shall we go? That's a great question, isn't it? You know, it would have been really a lot of pressure put on him. Imagine that. You're part of this big group of people, and it seems like the future is on your side. You're with the Messiah. You're with this great crowd of people. And all of a sudden, he preaches this sermon, and, and everyone's so offended, and they, they walk out the door, and, and they don't look back. And you, you look, and, and maybe there's hundreds of them. They just pour out. And it's just a tiny little group left. And sort of the play on the emotions, wouldn't it? And you start to think, well, I'm, I'm going to be all alone. I'm going to be in the mi- minority. I'm going to be on the wrong side of history. But in the face of, of sort of uninstructed emotions, in the, in the face of all this pressure he was under, he was able to think rationally. He was given that grace in order to to formulate a thought that actually shut out all of the temptations that would have presented themselves. And it was this, well, well, to where else shall we go? A wonderful question for any of us to ask when we're tempted in that direction. What is it? What is it that is so enticing about rejecting Jesus Christ? Where would we go if it wasn't for him? What would we desire more than Jesus Christ? Who is more worthy to be identified with than Jesus Christ? Would it be, be better to be like the worldlings who just go jogging and watch television on Sundays? Would it be better to those who just eat and drink and be merry because life has no meaning? It would be better to be those who, who worship popular opinion or entertainment or, or science and so-called in order to guide their, their walk of life. Or maybe you're, you're, that's, that's putting it too starkly. Maybe you can still be part of a, of a Christian assembly. Maybe you can still call yourself Christians. It's just that we're going to mute the full pro- proclamation of Christ. But look at what, what Peter goes on to say here. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. What a great thing Peter has said here. If you think about it, Jesus was, was committing almost every every unwise decision from a particular point of view. He wasn't, wasn't making his message very palatable at all. He, he wasn't trying to make it more appealing to these carnally-minded people. Look at some of the things he said to this crowd. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how is it that he, he speaks to this crowd of people considering following him? Well, he says, well, basically, you're such an evil group of people. You're so, 
You're so polluted in your hearts that except an act of sovereign grace from my Father would draw you, you'll never come to me. And look what he, he says here in verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. So he doesn't choose to the most smooth and appealing presentation of the gospel. No, he he goes to something that would have evoked images of cannibalism, eating flesh and blood. And of course, I think they they ultimately got the point that he was talking about. uh, There is only salvation through him. There's only salvation even through his, his death. And it would have been offensive on that level. But just think of how he's putting it. That's... That's what he said to drive those people away. And then verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are flesh. They are spirit, sorry. I speak unto you. And they are spirit and they are life. So what does he say about everything they are? All the flesh, all of their natural abilities and and talents and thoughts. He says they're all flesh. And they profit nothing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not the kind of sermon that, that the natural man favors. And yet, what does, what does Peter say here? You alone have the words of eternal life. What does he say about what, in a human sense, are the very hardest, most difficult to understand, most difficult to receive, most humbling teachings of the Lord Jesus? They are the words of eternal life. That's how it is with the Lord's people. There's a, a part of the Bible, and the world says, uh, 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 you can't confess that anymore. That's outdated. That is offensive. That is not in keeping with our progressive society. In fact, it's dangerous to society. In fact, it's going to cause people to get hurt and to kill themselves. And what is the Christian sometimes say, oh, well, you know, I, I know it's terrible that it's in the Bible, but, but we have to believe it. We have no other choice. How appalling. Let us take the lesson from the words of Peter. Everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord, that is life itself to us. Yes, the gospel, but also the law. Yes, the New Testament, also the Old Testament. Yes, those that that might win us an ear with the world today, but also those that the world hates with all their hearts. If we would truly come to the place where we, we are able to resist apostasy, we must embrace all of the Bible on its own terms as the word of God and as the words of eternal life, as that which brings us into communion and fellowship with God, is that which brings up our faith, is that which is a guide for our holiness. Let us never apologize for the word of God, not one jot nor one tittle, nothing. The word of God stands forever, and nothing will ever change that. So we see there's much we could learn about Peter's answer, but also Peter's confession. He says in verse 69, And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living 
God. What a great confession. That's ultimately what the word of God is to bring us to, isn't it? That we would confess Jesus Christ. That we would confess all of him. That we would own the whole Christ as prophet, as priest, and as king. As both Savior and Lord. As the one who is both crucified and rose and ascended to all dominion and authority. Even over the rulers of this world. All of the kingdom of God. It finds its, its focal point in Jesus Christ himself. And we must confess him in truth. We must say it is Christ and Christ alone that we build our life upon. It is Christ and Christ alone who is the cornerstone. There is no other place of refuge for a sinner to flee to. There is no other bread of life that can ever satisfy your hunger. There is no other sacrifice to atone for your sin. There is no other friend who would care for you or love for you as much as the Lord Jesus Christ. There is never any reason to hold back in this confession. Peter ultimately did, didn't he? There came a point, there came a point in his life where even a, a little girl at the right time was able to get him to say, I do not know the man. But what did that bring him to? Well, immediately with tears, he was weeping tears of genuine sorrow. And the Lord was pleased to restore him in, in due time. If you love me, feed my sheep. Yes, there's, there's restoration, there's mercy for those who would compromise in their confession. But the one who would harden themselves in, in their sin. The one who would, who would once confess Christ and then deny him and then die in that rejection. We, we must treat that with the seriousness it deserves as, as one who has no part in Christ. So it's this that we must, we must come to, congregation, confessing Christ from the heart and with the mouth and with the life because he's worthy of that confession. Many things we can, we can learn from this congregation. But I'd conclude with this third and final consideration, and that is how apostasy relates to election. Really, what I think the passage is driving us to is to see the big picture, how it is these two doctrines, that of apostasy and the election of God, his divine choosing unto eternal life, how that is related one to another. And so let's consider here in verses 70 to 71. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So here we, we do see that there's a number of things going on here. And in some sense, there's something special about these twelve disciples, isn't there? They are, in, in a sense, sort of the pillars of the early church. God has a special appointment for them as the servants of the Lord. 
And yet we can also apply this more generally to all of the elect of God. When we speak of those 11 who were true believers who could say in truth what, what Peter said from his mouth, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They, they could trace that not to anything in themselves. It wasn't like they were smarter. It wasn't like they were braver. It wasn't like they were more holy. It wasn't like they'd done anything whatsoever to deserve anything. It wasn't as though God looked down the corridors of time and said, okay, this one will believe on me, that one won't. No, quite to the contrary. Instead, all of the graces from beginning to end when it comes to those who are receiving of the favor and salvation of the Lord, when it comes to those who stand in the hour of testing, who do not forsake the Lord Jesus, but hold firm to their confession, they are to trace that not to nothing in the free, sovereign grace of God, those appointed before the foundation of the world unto eternal life in Jesus Christ. If God had not saved some, heaven would have none. And it's a humbling thing, isn't it? To really know that of yourself you would fall away. Of yourself, the flickering light of faith that that yet burns within you, it, it could be snuffed out in an instant. But looking at it from God's side, You must come to say, yes, I look at myself and I don't see how I could be saved, but when I look to God in Christ, I don't see how I could be lost. Because the very same power that spoke the world into existence, the very same power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave, that very same glorious power sustains and helps and preserves the elect of God, in their profession. Rejoice, believer. Do not be cast to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Do not be afraid when the enemies of the Lord Christ would come for us. Count it all blessing to be numbered among the persecuted of the Lord. Count it all joy to be numbered among those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And believe and trust and do not doubt that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And yet there is that sobering word, isn't there? That this doctrine of predestination appointing unto everlasting life, it also concerns not only the eleven, but also the one, doesn't it? He said, didn't he? And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Indeed, we know that there are no accidents with God. There is nothing that is separated from his divine decree. He knew and indeed appointed those who would harden their hearts before the foundation of the world to be objects of his wrath, even for everlasting destruction. The doctrine of reprobation. There are indeed those who, when cast to the eternal fires of hell, they will be cast there because 
from everlasting. They were the objects of God's wrath. And they are to testify not of his mercy and grace, but of his justice against all lawbreakers and those who would defy the Most High God and his Christ. It ought to make us never envy the wicked. Though they may be high and lifted up, though they may seem to have the entire world on their side, the reality is that their lot is more terrible than we can even imagine. And there ought not to be one of us who would ever dream of wanting to exchange places with them, no matter how hard it may be to take up our cross. And it also means that there ought to be a trembling, there ought to be a godly fear whenever we begin to see even the first beginnings of what it would mean to forsake the Lord Christ who bought us. Let us never, let us never for a moment tolerate that tendency in ourselves. If there be any trace of worldliness in us, let us be done with it now. Let it be now where we say we are done with compromises. Let it be now that we say we are done with apologizing for Jesus Christ. Let us be content to be his servants and to serve him as Lord. Let us be content to confess him as both the Son of God and the Christ. And let us ensure that when we enter into this tidal wave of apostasy, we hold fast to the one life jacket and the one life preserver, and that